Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. We're now in our series called Journey of the Redeemed. It's a study in the book of Luke, and as we explore the life of Jesus, we also examine our own journeys shaped by him. Thanks for being here on a hot, hot Sunday in Cincinnati. And for those of you online, I hope you're someplace nice and cool, but we've got a good AC in here today. Take in, take in the sounds and the, the presence in our space. Have you, ever, have you ever noticed the different ways you take in information, like a story? You know, if you watch it on a screen, like a TV or a movie, that's one thing. If you read it in a book, comics, anything on paper or a screen. But when you listen to it, you hear stories, whether someone's telling it live or maybe you're listening to an audiobook or a podcast. It's just, it's just different. If you ever have headphones in, are you guys headphones users out there, anyone? So I've discovered lately it's really different to have somebody's voice right in my ears. Like it feels super personal for good or for bad, right? So I've been listening to podcasts, as I've talked about here before. I finally got into audiobooks the last couple of years, but I was really doing people's like nonfiction. Like I felt like I could do a chapter at a time and take in information. But then I got into like a memoir and somebody telling you their story is really, really cool. So then I was like, but still, I'm a reader. I'm like, I want my fiction. I dive into a story and I'm going to get lost in this page. But I was like, I want to try a challenge. I want to try to listen to an entire book of fiction. I don't know how well I'm going to do with this. And several friends had recommended the Dublin Murder Squad by Tana French. And by the time I had that second person recommended, I'm like, okay. All right, maybe I'll try this. I'm kind of new to mysteries too. I I, I tiptoed back in with Agatha Christie and now I'm like, okay, let's try this. Now the fascinating part about this series is that every novel, where sometimes you think of like an Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes, you know, you've got the same detectives and they're solving it and they're the heroes. Well, in this series, every book is a different detective on the squad telling you the story. And they're very honest They're very real characters, and at some points, they're, like, falling apart, and you see it from their eyes. They're not the hero in the story. They are right there with you. They're a character living it out, and you're living through them. And like I said, having the voices in my head was somehow an entirely new experience. Now, I also might have chosen this because the narrators are Irish, really cool accents. I can do that, right? That's fun. And, in fact, while I was listening... I just, I just stepped into the perspective for a little bit. And it's very interesting to spend several hours inside the head of someone else. It's just a fascinating experience. Of course, I'm also paying attention to what they notice, right? So when they draw my attention to a clue, I'm trying to piece it together. So all of this I did in the woods, and I've done the likeness. Now, one of the narrators, by the end of it, I didn't really like them that much. They made choices I didn't agree with. They offended some other characters, and that bothered me. But it's just fascinating what you can learn and what you can gain when you pay attention in a new way, when you use different senses. Jesus was a storyteller. And we have been ending our journey of the redeemed by looking at all the different stories he told, all the fiction he created. And I'm a fan of fiction. 
And what did the people in the day, we keep looking at what they would have heard, how did they take in his message through their ears, but also we're examining like he's calling these parables. We know that means they have a spiritual meaning. They're talking about God, God's kingdom. And so we're putting together a mystery every time, trying to figure out what do these people, places, and things symbolize in Jesus's story. So we're going to have a little mystery today. We're going to figure out our clues. We're going to look at who Jesus was talking about and what he was trying to say through another parable. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20 today. And I'm going to begin, just read the first sentence, and we're going to set our narrative. We're going to find our setting. Verse 1 says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts, proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Okay, we have been bouncing around. So Jesus is telling stories, and this we've kind of jumped to different parts of his ministry. So what we need to know now is this is the last week of Jesus's life before he went to the cross. Just a chapter before this, if you flip a page back and you see Luke 19, you see that Jesus has come in on a donkey in this parade that we know as Palm Sunday. And then it says he spent that week, a lot of the week, teaching in the temple. So these are one of these, like, maybe it's a Monday or a Tuesday of that week, and he has been in the temple courts teaching. You know what he also just did? He got mad at the people in the temple, and he cleared people out with a whip, and he criticized not only the people changing money there, but the actual leaders of the temple. He gave some, like, cryptic critique of them. And so he's made them angry, obviously. So If we recall our spiritual influencers of the day, we keep pulling this screen up because all the time, Jesus interacts with Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests and teachers, and it's, I have a hard time keeping it up, trying to remember who's who. So if we recall this middle circle, this is the group today. They led the temple, like their job was to serve other people and to teach and to care for the spiritual well-being when people came to the temple in Jerusalem. That's their job. They are also the go-between. Anytime Rome wants to do something with the Jewish people, they're the people they talk to. They're like the middle people. So that is the setting. We've got Jesus is preaching there, and they're like, hmm, they don't really like this. Let's keep reading in verse 2. So they go up to Jesus and say, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism Was it from heaven or from human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded John was a prophet. So just imagine these little whisperings over here. So then they come back and they say, We don't know where it came from. Like, you just look silly, guys. Like, like, that's your answer? So Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So why, why are they asking this question? What they're really asking is, who gave you the authority to read the word of God and interpret it for people? Who gave you the ability to come to this temple and have any sort of say over how people should guide their spiritual lives? And Jesus brings up John. And maybe we've forgotten John by now. He has passed away. But way back, way back, long ago, in the beginning of Luke, 
we learned all about John, Jesus' cousin John. You might have heard of him as John the Baptist because he baptized people a lot, got that nickname. So John is out in the desert baptizing people, and he keeps saying God's Messiah is coming. And when Jesus came, Jesus, he pointed him out as the Messiah. In fact, Jesus said, John, you get to baptize me. And he's like, oh, I, I don't think I should do that. Like, you should baptize me, right? And Jesus is like, this is the way. Okay, he didn't say those exact words. But he's like, this is what's supposed to happen. And so John baptizes Jesus. And if you recall in Luke 3, we've got the scripture up here where it's like, there was a dove that landed on Jesus' shoulder as a visual representation of God's spirit filling him. And God's voice even said, this is my son whom I love. In him I am pleased. So that all happened out in the desert. And maybe there was an audience, and we don't know how many people were gathered around. So maybe some people, did they all hear the voice? They surely saw the dove. But either way, they probably start talking, you know, like, like whispers and like spreading the news. But not everybody believes some people out in a desert following this guy wearing camel's hair. Not everybody believes in that account. But basically Jesus is saying, if you believe in John, then believe in what he said right? He baptized Jesus. He said Jesus was the Messiah. So one and the other go together. And then if they didn't, well, they didn't seem to. So the chief priests and the teachers, if they had believed, they would have gotten baptized themselves, wouldn't you think? But they're trying to, like, save face. They want to lead the people. They don't want the people to riot. If the people riot and Rome gets mad, then who's in charge? Who's responsible? The chief priests, teachers of the law, because they were the go-between, right? So they're trying to keep the peace, but inside, they keep plotting. They're like, this has got to stop. So they say, we don't know, and it's kind of funny. Now Jesus says, okay, I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority. Later he will say, he will speak up about his identity, but he has a timeline. Jesus knows he's got a few days left. He's got some other things to do still, so he doesn't want to be arrested yet. But at some point, he allows them to arrest him, but it's on his time frame. God's time frame. So then we get to verse 9. So Jesus doesn't answer their question, but he's got a story for them. Jesus went on to tell this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he rented it to some farmers, and then he went away for a long time. Okay, let's talk first century economics here, all right? So to set out the stage, Jesus tended to use real-life scenarios in order to tell them parables. So we've got a pretty modern-day vineyard in Israel. Found this on Unsplash, fun, fun place for photos. So just take this in. So in the day, a wealthy landowner likely would have more than one plot of land. So they've got farms all over, and they live in one of the places, the best place. But they don't always go and visit all their farms all the time. So they hire servants. They hire managers to check in on everything. And then they hire tenant farmers, renters. Maybe we've heard of the term sharecroppers because you would do the work of the land. You're the one digging in the dirt, making sure everything's growing. And then when it, when it produces fruit, then you keep some of it. But the person who owns the field probably gets the majority of it, right? It's kind of how things work. So here we have a wealthy landowner, And we're dealing with the tenants, the people renting from him, doing the day-to-day work. Verse 10. 
at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants. The landowner's like, okay, it's rent. your rent is due. It's time to pay me. So they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat the servant, sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. The owner still sent a third servant, and they wounded him and threw it out. Okay, so again, this is based on real-life scenarios. Because if you were a worker day in and day out in this field, and no one's ever coming, no one's ever checking on you, it's like, well, I'm doing all the work. I'm the one here living here, working here day to day. It kind of starts to feel like your own. And then you're like, well, when the rent comes due, it's like, well, why should I pay you? What have you done? What have, you, have you checked on me? Have you done these things? So you could kind of like, kind of resonate. Like, that feels, that feels bad. So the tenants, they've become like, well, this is my land now. And let's just see what we can get away with. Let's see how long we can not pay the guy. So he doesn't do, he doesn't show up. So we are going to hold on to the crops for now. And then finally, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and then we will take the inheritance. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Again, this feels very dramatic. We're like, is Jesus just doing this because we're starting to see some symbolism here? But actually, if, if there was an issue with land, truly a landowner might send their own relative to deal with the magistrate and kind of work the matters out. So sending someone in your family would actually be a thing you would do. So we've looked here how this is in their time frame. Like, this is actually something they see lived out. Maybe some of the people listening to Jesus' very story, because all these people are gathered at the temple, and maybe some people are actually renters themselves. Maybe they're tenants. Maybe they get it. Maybe they see what's going on. But the people are also catching on the symbolism. Because I think, well, the chief priests and the teachers of the law who are hearing this, they're probably catching it. But it's interesting because some different, different historians were like, I bet the people, they've probably figured it out by now too. So what are we doing in our mystery here and our clues? We've got a vineyard, and that equals Israel. So in Isaiah 5, Israel is described as a vineyard. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. This is the people living at this time. These are their ancestors being described as a vineyard and not following after God, forgetting him. He's been away so long. We've just gone our own way. And the owner of the vineyard, God himself, is just heartbroken. So Jesus is bringing this back up like, guess what's happening now? This new generation, Jesus' generation. And he speaks of, a, of an owner who's willing to send his own relatives, who cares and is finding heartbreak. So we've got the vines and the vineyard being the people of Israel. And I imagine this scripture, these words were probably like things that the elders and the teachers of the law had memorized in order to teach the people. 
So do you think they started to like say it along in their heads like, oh, we're the vineyard. So then the tenants, those who were renting, who were they? The chief priests, the teachers, the elders, summarize those as temple leaders. They are supposed to care for, cultivate. They're supposed to dig in that vineyard day in and day out. And they've been chosen. They have been called to a job by God to care for his people, to, to worry about their spiritual development, to do the work been a long time since they've heard from God himself. So they started to make their own choices about the vineyard. So God sent servants year after year. Throughout the Old Testament, we see these servants are the prophets. They spoke hard things to God's people. They called them out. It was like, hey, it's, this is the direction God had for us. How were the prophets treated? We can read in scripture just over and over. They were ignored. Some were killed. John, Jesus just brought up his own cousin, a prophet. He was killed for what he said, for the truth he spoke, for the way he looked into God's law, looked into scripture, and brought new light to it. And sometimes people didn't want to hear any other translation, any other interpretation. We see that in people again and again. And Jesus is like, this is a new generation, same story. And finally, so we understand the son of the landowner is Jesus himself. So we put it all together and we realize that the people of God, there's those, all these years of silence. God used to speak through prophets. God used to speak out loud. He used to send things down like manna or rain. And now we just, we've just been waiting. We've been figuring it out ourselves because we don't have, the landowner is not here. He doesn't seem to care. So they made their own authority in their own way. But Jesus was like, hey, I'm here. I wanted to show you this way. But the people, the people are will ignore, push out, and destroy the son. And they killed him. Just like these chief priests, the temple leaders, they're, they're plotting to kill Jesus. We see this over and over. So instead of looking internally, here's what they say. Well, Jesus responds first, 15. Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Dark turn. This is still a parable. It's not a literal thing. But here we're realizing that the vineyard is representing not just the people of Israel, but what does Jesus keep warning them about? That years from now, the temple itself will be destroyed. It'll be destroyed, and people standing among them today would lose relatives, would lose friends, or maybe their own lives. So Jesus keeps trying to help them grow now before an enemy comes. The people are shocked. They see the symbolism. They're like, well, what, now you're bringing it into death? Like, this is a dark turn. And the, the chief priests and the teachers and the elders, they were intimidated by the crowds, but here the crowds are probably like, well... You're doing good. Let's not leave you because then Rome will take over. 
so Jesus is, he keeps trying to give these, these little pieces of like, it's now, now, today is the day to evaluate what's going on inside your hearts, to evaluate the way you were leading others, to evaluate the way that you care about the people that you were tasked to care for. Are you really caring about them? And Jesus speaks it because not only like he wants them to be better for themselves, and he wants them to keep influencing the next generation for good. And so then Jesus continues with a metaphor. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, what is the meaning of that which is written? And this is going to be a psalm. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law, the chief priests, looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Reputations are at stake. Right now, they're not acting, but they want to. So there's this, there's this cornerstone metaphor. Now, a cornerstone would be I'm not a builder, so please don't judge me, Rob. Um, they have like a, two walls coming together, and you have a piece that holds it together. But I liked what it's also called the keystone in an arch, because this I can visualize. Has anyone ever been to the St. Louis Arch? Anybody been there? Anybody been up in it? Maybe when I tell you how it was made, you might be scared of this. But when they were building the arch, they began on the sides. I watched this whole movie about it after I'd been up it. And so they're building it up to the sides. If you want to flip, hopefully you can kind of see these pictures. And then they get to the very middle. And the last piece they put in is the keystone up top. And when they set it there, they weren't even sure this was going to work. But they put the piece up there. And the idea was to kind of let go of the two sides and they were supposed to just fall in. (laughs) And that stone was supposed, that last piece was supposed to hold the weight of everything. And you watch this video and you're like, they didn't know if it would work. This is freaking me out. My family tricked me going up in there and I was very claustrophobic, but it was a very great experience and I'll never do it again. But it's held for how many years? But that was the key. So you have that, and it's holding all the weight together of this beautiful structure. So this psalm is saying, like, the thing you discarded. Like, if builders are just, like, sorting through the building options, and they're like, this brick is bad, this is bad, this one will work. And they start to build, and something is missing. And that piece they threw over there a long time ago, they realize it's the whole key of putting everything together. It's holding it all in place. Jesus holding it all in place. Not trying to brag. He's just like, he's like, this is my purpose. It's kind of why I came. Like all of it has been building up to this. Like all of God's moving among his people has been this beautiful structure. Jesus is ready to hold it in place. They didn't trust it. They didn't trust it. And we have to read Jesus' words and just think, we're being asked to trust. We're being asked to trust in this thing that we've never seen done before. Is it going to work? We have to be, we're asked to trust in this ancient book and this Jesus who lived long ago. We're being asked to trust to see if he works. You know, besides piecing together clues and a parable, or discovering clues in a murder mystery. 
The other thing that happens when we pay attention to a story, we can not only learn from like, well, crazy like landowners who are vindictive or temple leaders who are jealous, but sometimes you step back and it's not just the story. You appreciate the story, but you learn something about the author themselves. When I kept reading the novels, listening to the novels by Tana French, our echo friend Ryan had pointed out to me, she said, notice the friendships. And in every novel, Tana brings about, she describes these beautiful, deep friendships between people. And yeah, they might be solving gruesome murders, but they rely on the friendships in their lives. And you realize there's another story being told besides a mystery. And I was like, I bet she values that. Why would she keep putting these in her novels? And I came across a 2014 interview that Tana did with The Guardian. And she said this, I'm fascinated by friendship. It comes into all of my books. I think it's possible to be in a healthy, fulfilled human being without a partner or children. But I'm not sure it's possible to be a whole, healthy human being without good friends. So I've always been interested in the intensity of friendship and even the dangers that can come with that. Great friendships are incredibly powerful, passionate things. So there, there was something about her she put in the story. And so when we're looking at these parables every week and we've, we've tried to learn from different perspectives, this week I think we look at this scripture and we say, well, how, how do we live as the redeemed people of Jesus because of this story? I think we just, we pay attention to other stories. Like we're being asked for our attention. The people of the day were listening. We read it. Or maybe we can read it aloud and hear it, right? Today's parable, everything was symbolizing and we've dug into that. But what does this parable say about Jesus himself, the author of it? Well, Jesus knew what was about to happen in his life just a few days from the time he told this story. And he looked in the eyes of the people who wanted him dead, and he spoke anyway. He cared anyway. He wanted them to actually change. And so he stayed in the conversation. And that is very hard to do. If you've ever had to speak to someone who you know doesn't agree with you, who you know doesn't like you in this moment, that takes a lot of strength to keep talking, doesn't it? Much less if they want you to physically be harmed. That's how much they dislike you. Jesus was a human being, and he placed himself in a situation. Like, he looked pretty cool. Like, you read it, and he's like, Jesus is playing it cool. But what was, it, what was going on inside? Like, he knows time is ticking. He's got just a few days left. He knows what awaits him. I'm sure anxiety is building within him because we read by Thursday night, he's praying and crying out to God and really regretting this choice that he's made to go to the cross. But he does it anyway. But we can't take away the fact that this was building. There was things going on inside of him and that, that when we live as human beings, we relate to a God who put himself in our shoes and lived with that that anxiousness, the apprehension, the fear of never knowing what this pain has felt like before, looking people, have, feeling their hatred, that's a lot he took on. So when we stop and we pay attention, not just to the parable, but to recognize the person who told it, he was talking about his dad who was 
heartbroken year after year, generation after generation, and watching these people made in his image that he really wants to do good. And then every once in a while, well, maybe more than a once in a while, they break his heart. Just like family and friends can do, right? Jesus put himself in that parable, put everything of him in there. And so what do we gain by paying attention to the Jesus himself, the storyteller? We can, just, we can just see him, that he was human and that he had fears and that he was ready to die anyway for other people, not himself. And I think that, I think that's what it does is that if he is speaking and showing that he is the Messiah, then if we pay attention to him as a storyteller, we have to ask ourselves Do we believe in what he's telling? It's an okay thing to ask. He says he's the Messiah. He said that his death wasn't just a martyr dying for their faith, but but that had actual redeeming qualities to it that was for our healing. So when we hear his story, it challenges us to decide if we believe the storyteller. But Jesus isn't the only storyteller. You're going to walk out of these doors today and you're going to, there's stories all around you. People are sharing. People you know, people you don't know. They're communicating to you stories. Maybe they're doing it in the form of a joke. Maybe they're doing it in the form of like a passive aggressive thing that they really want you to know, but they're trying to hide it because that's kind of hard to say. But if you pay attention, people are telling stories. And even the ones that they make up, Even the fiction out there has got some pieces of them in it, right? Why are they telling this story? Why do they keep repeating this story? What can we learn from other people if we pay attention to their stories? And why does it matter? Think about it when someone pays attention to you. What does that mean? They see you. They know you. They hear you. They care about you. Paying attention is a gift. Every time you pay attention to someone's story, you're giving a gift. You're giving a gift that looks like Jesus because as much as Jesus told stories, he also listened to them. He saw what people couldn't say. He paid attention. So that's our challenge this week is how do we go out and pay attention and give that gift? We're going to close in prayer, and afterward, we're going, to, we're going to take some time to think about the gift that Jesus gave, the whole reason he came, what happened a few days after this story, that he went to the cross to die, that he rose again to defeat death and sin and all the gross in the world. That's why he came. We're going to take communion together and remember that. We're going to, let's pay attention as we eat the bread. So we drink the juice. What is God saying to you? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for ears to hear and eyes to see, for hands to reach out and touch, to learn from you in all the different senses that we have, that we can take in your stories, 
And thank you for revealing part of yourself every time you told a story. We want to keep getting to know you better, deeper, figuring you out. Thank you for claiming you were the Messiah and help us to keep stepping into that journey of trusting you as our Redeemer. We thank you for seeing us, knowing us, and paying attention to our lives. Help us do the same. Amen. Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 1030 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio, just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.